Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. These midweek extra episodes are a chance for us to go deep on a particular topic or perhaps with a particular person. And today, I'm pleased to have on the program David French. David French is a graduate of Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee, and also of the Harvard Law School. He spent many years as an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom. He was a staff writer for the National Review from 2015 to 2019, and he currently serves as a senior editor of The Dispatch. Well, David French, welcome to the program. You know, you and I were talking before I hit the record button about how you and I have been covering a lot of the same stuff. You're, in some ways, you're, the content you're producing uh, for The Dispatch is kind of the gift that keeps on giving to me because I love reading your stuff and I always get story ideas. So it's great to have you on the program. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And, you know, there are, I don't know that we'll get to them all, but if I, if, if we can, I'd like to cover both the, I'd like to cover the Southern Baptist and the Canacook stories that we've both kind of been writing about some. And sure. also just a, a column that you did back in May on how American Christendom weakens American Christianity, which is kind of a, I guess, takes the Canacook story, the Southern Baptist story, and lots of other stories, and, and maybe um, steps back from the individual stories and looks at the big picture. But let's start with the Southern Baptist story. Um, you actually wrote two columns, um, one on June 6th and one on June 13th, that um, talked about both Russell Moore in that first column and how his work there in some ways was a uh, a call to arms. I don't know, a call to arms is not the right word, but maybe a call to courage right. for the SBC. And then uh, another column about the SBC's uh, c- conference itself. Um what were you trying to get through to us in those two columns? Yeah, you know, so um, if you'd followed the the Russell Moore story at the SBC, you knew that there there were some real problems in leadership there. <laughs> there were some real problems. And in many ways, Dr. Moore was a canary in a coal mine. And if you'd followed him closely over the last five, six years, you would have known that he had faced a series of investigations um, that he had faced really what he called, and I think it's the right term, sort of a campaign of psychological terror inflicted upon him. And what were his sins? So what what had he done wrong? There was no allegation of financial impropriety. There was no allegation of any sort of scandal at all. It was, as he wrote in his letters, there were two main issues, and it, and it wasn't his opposition, well-known opposition to Donald Trump in 2016, one was his, uh, his effort to bring accountability and to bring transparency and accountability to the sexual abuse crisis within the Southern Baptist Convention, specifically up to and including all the way up to the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. And the other one was to really continue to be a part, uh, to continue to turn the page on the SBC's undeniably racist past. I mean, th- this is a that's not a controversial statement. I mean, the SBC has acknowledged and repented of it, but beyond the the acknowledgments and repentance, what can you do to continue racial reconciliation? And 
So what he was relating, and, and there were some letters that were leaked that I wrote about, uh, the one was to his board of trustees at the ERLC, the, ex, uh, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and one was a letter he wrote to J.D. Greer, the president of this, the then president of the Southern Baptist Convention that contained just really, I'm not going to say shocking because I'm not sure what I can be shocked by anymore, <laughs> um, but deeply disturbing allegations about the way behind closed doors how senior leaders at the SBC treated victims of sexual abuse. I mean, comparing them to Potiphar's wife, uh, calling one a whore, uh, saying they were crazy, um, the way they talked about some of these racial issues behind closed doors that were really um, deeply disturbing. Now, of course, again, we're talking about Russell's letters, you know, Russell's account of what occurred, um, which was followed by in some quarters silence and some quarters denial. But in the week after all of that came out, more information came out that I then reported on the next week and talked about the next week. But what it began to show was this real sort of pattern and practice um, of, I'm, you know, a combination of actual outright cruelty, just cruelty inflicted on people who were activists in these areas, um, along with, you know, complicity, quite frankly, in corruption. And this was something that I think was, um, I mean, for those who'd not followed every twist and turn of this for years, it should have been, it should have been, and in many ways ended up being a wake-up call. Well, let me um, uh, take you from there then, because uh, I, I do want to ask the, the question, was it really a wake-up call? Did the Southern Baptists rise to the challenge? Because, you know, what we've seen is uh, those letters were came out in the aftermath of Russell Moore's resignation as the president of the ERLC. He's ultimately gone to a position, um, uh, a significant position, and one that I'm excited about for him uh, at Christianity Today. Um, but so he resigned. The letters leaked. Um, it, you reported on them and others reported reported on them, but I think you were um, did some of the uh, sort of most in-depth reporting on those letters. And then the SBC convention actually happened in Nashville. Um, and there was a, there's a new president, uh, Ed Litton. Uh, there was a great deal of conversation about these issues that of sexual abuse and, and uh, dealing with the racist past of the SBC. So my question for you, David French, is did they rise to the challenge? Did they actually, was it the come to Jesus meeting that Russell Moore was really, I guess, indirectly saying that they needed to have? Well, let me put it this way. It wasn't some sort of like Asbury revival. <laughs> um, but in a in a clash that existed in a very real clash between uh, you know this southern this conservative baptist network that was quite explicitly coming to nashville to take the ship to seize control of the southern baptist convention um and you know the rest of the convention and this was not a clash between liberals and moderates or however you know you you would see it described it was a a clash between two different strands of 
quite conservative Christianity. I framed it as evangelicalism versus fundamentalism. Well, well let me let me pause you there, David, because I think this is an important point, and, and you make it uh, really um, uh, plainly in one of your columns. You say that this is not a liberal conservative fight. No. Uh, even though the ones on the um, fundamentalist side um, are trying to paint it that way, they're trying to paint Russell Moore and those that are allied with him as being woke and <laughs> liberal and um, you know going down the slippery slope of progressivism uh, but you say that that is just a false reading of the facts here no completely false I mean you know the word woke has become almost useless in our society at this point I mean it used to have kind of a meaning uh, but now it tends to mean well if you're one inch to my right I mean or one inch to my left just one millimeter to my left, on an issue of race, you're woke um, or, you know, sex abuse or whatever, you're woke. So it, it just, we need to just stop using that word because it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's just a pejorative. So this was, this was a clash between two different groups of people who both believe, have the same belief in the authority of scripture. You know, this is not between one, one set of folks who are, who are watering down scripture and one set of folks who are, you know, clinging to the fundamentals of the faith. And no, 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 no. These are two sets of people who have the same view of scripture. They're, if you, you know, in fact, a lot of their differences to someone who's not a Christian, to somebody sort of out completely outside looking in would seem kind of opaque, would be kind of tough to discern. I mean, it's not even a clash between Trump voters and never Trumpers. By and large, this is a clash between Trump voters. <laughs> so, well, right. I mean, both sides believe in the authority of Scripture. Both sides believe in the Trinity. Both sides believe in a literal resurrection. But I mean, you you just go down the list of the essential doctrines of the faith, and there's not a hair's width worth of difference between the two sides. Exactly. So it's really all about sociology or politics or denominational power. Is that what you would say? Well, and also it's something else that I would say. It's a difference between fundamentalism and evangelicalism. And so this is a distinction that is something that when I was growing up, so I grew up in a very fun, a fun what I would call a fundamentalist sect, and that is the Acapella Churches of Christ. So I, I wrote this, I said, I grew up in fundamentalism and I converted to evangelicalism. And, and so this used to be a distinction that, that really mattered more before evangelicalism became sort of more of a exit poll term and self-identification term than really a meaningful distinction within the larger body of Christ. And, and, and I wrote this, I said, you know, you can, you can really distinguish fundamentalism by its emphasis on personal righteousness and piety and an obsession that, for example, a compromise anywhere on anything is a compromise everywhere on everything. And so, you know, an example of a difference between sort of a fundamentalist approach to faith and an evangelical approach to faith, and I, I try to use an example just to pull it out of the culture wars, is one that, you know, I'm sure you're keenly aware of, and arguments about this have gone back and forth for years and years and years. For example, the extent to which can you benefit from secular psychology in biblical counseling? So, in other words, you have two, one counselor believes in, in the authority of Scripture, another counselor believes in the authority of Scripture, but one is saying, hey, wait a minute, there's, you know, if there are things that are true, they're true, and we can pull it in, and with the knowledge that Scripture is supreme, 
Um, and then the other person says, no, if, if I can't find the concept explicitly at scripture, it's not going to be useful at all. And one of the things about fundamentalism is, is often it often indulges in a, a catastrophic sort of view of negative cultural development. So, you know, in politics, it will manifest itself through moral panics, um, if you lose the ability to teach evolution in schools, you'll face God's wrath. Or when we didn't have got prayer in schools, we'll face God's wrath. Or gay marriage is a point of no return. And you can sort of see that strain, whereas evangelicalism has a different approach. It has a sort of a more open approach and one that is less catastrophic its view, and it's more ecumenical within sort of the larger body of Christ. And and when I saw what was going on in Nashville, I saw, aha, <laughs> this isn't this isn't liberal versus moderate. This is much more evangelical versus fundamentalist. And I think those who sort of grew up in fundamentalism or, or who are very familiar with fundamentalism can't really understand the cultures of both the far right and, ironically enough, the far left. Because the far left has a a very fundamentalist style zeal that is attached to its own um, its own worldview and and the intensity with which you see the far left, for example, embrace things like cancel culture. You know that's something that's like reading straight from a fundamentalist playbook when you're talking about that. Well, I think that's a really interesting point. It was always fascinating to me that a lot of uh, in in some of the early polls when uh, when Trump and Bernie Sanders were both in the race um, in tw- in twenty fifteen in, in twenty sixteen that um, you would ask a Trump supporter pollsters would ask a Trump supporter who their second choice was, and many of them would say Bernie Sanders. And, yeah. and if you would go to a Bernie Sanders supporter and ask them who their second choice was, many of them would say Donald Trump. In some ways. Th- they that you know far left and far right um they shared a populism that almost trumped their moral and political uh, ideologies and uh, it became more important the, the, the tribalism uh and the the process and the uh uh, the means uh, actually, uh, you know, which was kind of the means on both sides was kind of burn down the house. You know, we're going to start over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So exactly. It's funny you say that. I actually sat on a flight uh, from uh, from D.C. in the 2016 election next to Bernie bro. We had this really kind of fun conversation where I tried to talk him out of single payer health care and and all of this. And at the end of it, I said, so who's your second choice? He goes, not Hillary, Trump. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, yeah, so that's a conversation for another day. We'd better stay on task here, David. But so let me let me go. I want to pivot and talk about the Canacook stories because that's another story that you and I both uh, have covered uh, along with you with your wife Nancy. But before we do that, let me just go back to the question that I posed a moment ago to kind of get. I I I don't want to push you into a yes or no answer, but yeah, did the Southern Baptists have that the kind of convention that they needed to have. Yeah. By and large, yes. Um, They dodged a bullet, very narrowly uh, voted for Ed Litton for president, who um, really is, you know, he's a guy who is committed to, you know, uh, a wonderful pastor. First, he primarily was defined as a pastor, not as a culture warrior. Okay. So that's a primary definitional issue there. He's primarily a pastor, not a culture warrior, committed to racial reconciliation, 
committed to transparency and, and diligence in investigating matters of sexual abuse. Uh, and more importantly, and just as importantly, I should say, they rejected the candidate of the pirates, the pirate ship that really wanted to take the SBC in a very hardcore culture war direction. And so, and, but it was narrow. It was narrow. <laughs> so that's why, you know, I say that this was a victory in a battle, not sort of a conclusion of a war. Um, and then, you know, I would say also, by and large, if you look at the resolutions that came out of the SBC with one notable um, exception, a, a resolution on abortion that was deeply problematic, but got watered down, it was just we could have a whole podcast on that one, <laughs> Warren. But well, we could. But give me a headline. What was what from your point of view? What was the problem? Yeah. So essentially, what this um, this abortion resolution did initially was to say that any approach uh, to abortion other than absolute prohibition, immediate prohibition, without even mention of an exception for uh, the life of the mother, was a sin. And so what this does, it, what it did is it, it took all of the legal efforts and all of the cultural efforts of the pro-life movement where, you know what, you can't ban abortion right now. You can't. It's not possible legally to ban abortion. But there has been an enormous amount of progress made with hundreds of state laws that have, um, that have placed limits on abortion clinics, that have increased the, you know, uh, that have uh, you know, allowed women to see unborn children in the womb to that gives them a second chance before to think rethink their decision. There's been a host of abortion restrictions that have made a real difference and have saved a lot of lives. And this resolution just condemned it all. Just condemned it all. It's either abolition or you're sinning was essentially the the point of view. And you can't abolish it right now. You just can't. And so the pro-life movement was appalled by that because it was essentially saying that much of their life's work, which, by the way, had helped the abortion rate plunge below where it was when Roe was decided. The abortion rate right now is below where it was when Roe was decided, that all of that was just sin. All of that was sin, complicity and murder. And the reality is that, uh, and so what essentially what they did, they were able to insert a word in the resolution that said, that condemned um, that said that increment, incrementalism alone was not the answer. Now, I hope the SBC goes back and revisits that that resolution because it's got a lot of problems, but it was watered down at least somewhat. But aside from that one resolution, the SBC made a lot of good choices, including rejecting the executive committee's decision to launch a much more limited, less transparent uh, investigation of sex abuse. And the, and the messengers were like, nope, this thing needs to be much more uh, transparent and, and people need to be held to, held to account. Well, they do, and we'll see what happens <laughs> in, in the future. So maybe, David, uh, we will uh, have you back on the program. I hope you'd be willing to have th this conversation a few months from now so we can kind of do a follow-up and see uh, what has happened. And speaking of sexual abuse, let's pivot in our conversation to talk about the other story that I'm pretty interested in, and I know you are too, and that is the Canacook story. Uh, uh, you and your wife, Nancy, have been covering the Canacook story uh, for months. I have been covering the story here at Ministry Watch for months as well. And um, just in a nutshell, for uh, I can't imagine, especially for listeners of this podcast who are, you know, typically a little bit more informed than the average bear about uh, some of the stuff that we're doing, they would probably know the Canacook story. But in a nutshell, David, can you just kind of say what's at issue here with Canacook? Yeah, well, boy, in a nutshell. 
So let me just say that the genesis of what the the issue, and it's all still evolving and unfolding, by the way. Um, yep, yep. Gretchen Carlson, former Fox News anchor who does a lot of work uh, opposing non-disclosure agreements in sex abuse cases, uh, reached out to my wife and said, you might want to, you know, and connected connected her with some folks who had raised real alarms that there was a massive super predator at this huge influential Christian camp and nobody knew anything about the incident that this uh, a person had victimized young boys for years and years and years at this camp and nobody knew anything about it and so we began to look at it Nancy first then she pulled me into it and what we found was and the way I described it is the worst sexual abuse scandal you've never heard of it was a decades worth of predation of young boys not just at this camp, but this camp made this this predator sort of the, the face of the camp. And he went to people's homes where he groomed kids. He took kids on trips to China where he abused them. He It, it's, it boggles the mind how bad this abuse was. Um, I talked to a prosecutor ultimately in his case, and he said that he believes ultimately there were hundreds of victims. And, well, we should and we should be clear that this this predator Peter Newman is in prison and will likely spend the rest of his life in prison. Um, but the the issue for Canacook, it seems to me, or the the issue that I think is worth still talking about uh, and is not fully resolved is the fact that you know it's kind of the old Watergate gate question: What did Canacook know, and when did they know it? Yeah, and if they did know it, why didn't they do something about it? Exactly. So that was the key question. He had been caught and in prison and the whole thing happened and just disappeared from the news. But there was so much more there. How did this sexual predator operate for a decade at least? And um, what we found, we dug in, we began to find documents that weren't publicly available. Um, We found a family that had refused to sign a non-disclosure, a non-disparagement agreement. And and obtained documents nobody had seen. And we found out that the camp knew in 1999, there were reports in 1999 that this guy had been nude with campers. There were other reports in the early 2000s. He had been nude with campers. In 2003, he was subject to disciplinary process where in writing, he was asked to explain what's wrong with the Catholic sex abuse scandal. So they they had on their minds that this person could be an abuser in 2006, a student, a, a camper reported that they saw him um, molesting a kid. He continues to be at the camp. In 2008, he's counseled against having Bible studies in hot tubs with young boys. I mean, it just went on and on and on. And then he's finally caught in 2009, where a parent, a Canuck parent, received a report of his misconduct and then confronted him flat out and says, you're, you're turning yourself in or I'm calling law enforcement. And that was what it took. And when we went back and we looked at it, it was stunning to us the amount of reports of him being nude with young boys. And they're getting these reports and still prom- they're not they're not firing him. He was promoted. He they put him into the homes of people. They made him the face of the camp. And you know, one of the worst aspects of this was a deposition with Joe White, who is the head of Canacuck. And he's asked in this deposition. And and I should say that Joe White is in some ways kind of a legendary figure within evangelicalism. I mean, he's spoken at 
Promise Keepers and uh, and at Liberty University's convocation, which has you know twenty thousand people at the event or, or ten to twenty thousand people. Uh, I mean, he's um, not to mention the fact that he's been the head of Canacook for decades and. 20,000 kids a year kind of cycle through Canacook. So there are literally millions of kids in this country that if, that kind of look up to Joe White and consider him to be kind of a of an idol in some ways. Yeah, and, and this deposition was haunting. He says, well, we had a waterfall of appreciation for this predator, Pete Newman, and then a couple of drops, and he was implying that a couple of bad drops of reports, but those couple of drops were reports of nudity Nudity with young boys, um, four-wheeling nude, playing basketball nude, skinny dipping with young kids. And these are things that are immediate fireable offenses, if not reportable to authorities. And he was saying, well, we just got a couple of these negative reports. And I was talking to one of the leaders at Canacuck, interviewing him about this. And I read him that Joe White testimony. And he was like, yes, exactly. That's what we were thinking. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> Did you have reports that other counselors were nude with kids? I mean, was this common? Is something you just... No, we did not. So you had extraordinary reports of nudity with young kids. And not only did you not fire this guy, he was promoted. Why was he promoted? He was doing so much good for the ministry, Warren. He was doing so much good for the ministry. And and this is a pattern that we see outside of Canacuck. It's It's... The more sort of charismatic you are, the more you're able to point to, look at the money I bring in, look at the souls that are being saved, the less accountability you have. I mean, it, it's it, think about Jerry Falwell Jr. in Liberty. I mean, a lot of his misconduct was an open secret, and yet he is bringing millions and millions to Liberty. Ravi Zacharias, in 2017, when he's accused of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct, when the ministry, quote unquote, investigates him, he refuses to turn in his own technology. He refuses to turn in his technology and they just sweep it away and on they go. And it turned out what was on his technology that he refused to turn in? Well, pictures of about 200 women, um, evidence of abuse of women, you know, and so again and again, I mean, Carl Lentz and Hillsong, you get reports of the abusive atmosphere that he had fostered before the reports of his uh, infidelity surfaced. I mean, we can do this all day. And it's what ends up happening is that your a person's charisma and their outward indications of success grants them sort of this zone of privilege to abuse, a zone of privilege for corruption. And we see it again and again and again. And in this, in this case at Canacuck, it was particularly grotesque because the abuse was children. Yeah. Well, David, we've got to bring our conversation uh, kind of to a close here, but I, but uh, you wrote an article that kind of encapsulated many of the issues that we're talking about, uh, a column called How American Christendom Weakens American Christianity, in which you kind of made some of the points that you just made, that if you kind of get the celebrity status, it, it immunes you from scrutiny because you're bringing in money and you're speaking on big platforms and sort of the law of big numbers begins to take over and and you can start pointing to people that say, well, you know, I became saved because of your um, speech at, you know, such, some big rally, or I decided to go to seminary because of uh, your work. But what 
you seem to be saying is that um you know that God measures fruitfulness in a different way that God measures fruitfulness um in terms of humility, in terms of love, in terms of joy, in terms of kindness, and not just in terms of money and power and fannies in chairs. Is, is that a fair summary? <laughs> yeah, that's a good summary. And in fact, you know, the way in which when, look, institutions are important, and I'm not denigrating, I'm not at all denigrating institutions as institutions. What I'm saying is that institutions and institutional thinking creates temptations. And what has happened time and time again is that the institutions of Christianity have let down the faith. And the people within the institutions of Christianity have begun to look out for the best interests of the institution and their what they perceive to be the best interests of the institution, as opposed to um, looking out for and and manifesting the fruits of the spirit and manifesting that sort of integrity that's vital if you're going to be and have this pub, private or public Christian witness. And so what ends up happening is it's for the good of the school, it's for the good of the ministry. And you begin to take actions that defend the institution under the presumption that the institution is so valuable that even that the body of Christ needs it. And that line of thinking is a recipe for disaster and it's rife within ministries. It is rife within ministries. And the more popular the ministry from a secular perspective, the more common that kind of thinking is to the point where the institution becomes a substitution for the church. If if something bad happens to liberty, boy, that's going to be bad for the church. If something bad happens to RZIM, that's going to be bad for the church. If something bad happens to Canacuck, that is bad for the church. And the instant that thought enters your mind is the instant that you know that institutionalism is corrupting your mindset. Yeah. Well, that's a great word. And just finally, David, uh, you know, the, all, most of the organizations that we've spoken about, Hillsong and Carl Lentz, he's, you know, he's out of ministry now. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ravi Zacharias, you know, that ministry is probably, you know, more or less out of business. Uh, uh, Liberty University, Jerry Falwell Jr. is gone. But at Canacook, things seem to be Proceeding apace. Um, yeah. First of all, the, what do you want to see happen at Canacook? A change in leadership, a change in board? What, what What needs to happen there before you would say that there's been justice, there's been um, a biblical uh, accountability? I would say we don't, that, I don't know that that's occurred at Liberty yet or at Hillsong yet, because what ends up happening is these. So here was here's what I would say. I think when a ministry that has any ability, financial ability to do this, when they receive uh, accusations of sexual assault, financial misconduct, commission an independent, transparent investigation by competent investigators and hold leaders accountable according to the results of that investigation. The idea that these ministries can investigate themselves, that ship has sailed long ago, especially when you're dealing with these celebrities who have often captive boards. The boards all are handpicked, often driving some of their own cultural influence by being on that board. So they have a vested interest in the the leader or the institution maintaining its prominence. So independent investigations by competent investigators with transparent results and accountability as a result. And so, you know, one of the things at Liberty, how is it that I knew in Franklin, Tennessee, had received a lot of word of a lot of Jerry Falwell's misconduct two years before his fall, and the board is... Stunned, stunned. 
please, please, you know, or the Ravi Zacharias, 2017, that in 2017, that ministry was on notice and he can, he continued to abuse women until, uh, you know, close to his death. Who is he the only one responsible for that? That's why independent investigation, transparent results and accountability These things are absolutely imperative, and it is honestly often the thing that these institutions fear the most, because when you have a a quote-unquote fallen leader, you often have years of enabling underneath that, years of people desperately trying to manage the problem so that it doesn't get too bad. And you saw that with Pete Newman, 03. Well, let's talk to him about not being like the Catholic priests, you know, Oh, hey, let's talk to him about not having the hot tub Bible studies. Manage the problem. Manage the problem. And so that's why transparency and independent investigations are key. And it's also why these institutions fear them so desperately. Well, David French, we could do this all day, <laughs> but unfortunately, we don't have, neither of us have all day. And I'm sure our listeners probably have other things to do as well. But listen, thank you so much. This is, uh, first of all, I really appreciate your work and Nancy's work on the Canacook story, but also on the other stuff that you guys are doing there. Uh, just really appreciate it. And I'm also grateful for your time uh, today to be on the podcast. Thanks very much. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Before we go, I want to remind you that you can find all of the articles we discussed today over at The Dispatch, where David is a senior editor. My Canacook coverage, which now amounts to about a dozen stories, as well as our coverage of the Southern Baptist Convention and other organizations that we discussed today, can be found at ministrywatch.com. Also, a quick reminder that my book, Faith-Based Fraud, is finally available for sale to the public. Last year, you may recall, we self-published an edition of about 500 copies and gave them away to our donors. Thanks to the generosity of many of you, they didn't last very long. That motivated us to find a real publisher, you might say, and Wild Blue Press out of Denver, Colorado stepped up, and they've brought out a hardback, a paperback, an ebook, and an audiobook version of Faith-Based Fraud. You can find all of those various editions by going to Amazon or your favorite online book retailer. I hope you'll get a copy today. The producer for today's program is Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. I'm Warren Smith. Until next time, may God bless you.